Great to have you with us. My name's Matt. We are going to look at a great story again today in the Bible, in a section of the first book of Samuel. Uh, now, we're not going as we move through this book, we're not going to look at every story uh, as such. Now, the reason for this is that we want to encourage you actually to read with us. Uh, and so on our, uh, for our Sunday services, we're going to be focusing on just some key um, aspects of this story. Uh, we do, however, cover the rest and we want to make sure we give you all the tools uh, to be able to read the Bible for yourself. Uh, we have the Thrive Bible Reading Guide. Uh, you can uh, hop on our website and find out how to get uh, a copy of that. And also the Thrive Deeper podcast. Uh, you can get that through your favourite podcast app, the Thrive Deeper podcast. We really get into the, into the depths uh, of this material. And as I said, we... I really would encourage you, let's read together. Let's go on a journey together. I think it's great uh, for us to be able to track together on this. I spoke a little bit last week, actually, about the importance of the Bible, of reading the Bible in our lives. And let me add uh, something to this, uh, to what I already said last week. Our sense of meaning in life comes from the story that we think we're part of. Now, as a Christian, we believe that we're part of the unfolding story of redemption that's told in the Bible. And the reason that we focus on the Bible is so that we stay connected with the story that we're a part of, and therefore also with the meaning of our lives. There's actually a direct connection between learning how to interpret the Bible and learning how to interpret the circumstances of our lives. And one of the things that I, I always want to model as I teach through the Bible is actually how to interpret the Bible, how to read the Bible for ourselves so that we can become proficient as we get good at interpreting the Bible. I believe we will also become proficient at interpreting the meaning of the circumstances of our lives. The Bible actually is given to enable us, to train us to do that. So as we learn to read the Bible, we also learn to read life. And that's certainly the case with the story that I want to look at today. This has been uh, a very pertinent story uh, for me, and I hope it will be too for you. It is uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, last week, we looked at the story of Samuel the prophet, who God raised up to prepare the way for the next big stage in his plans for his people, that was to raise up for them a king. This was always part of the plan. God was going to give them a king. Now, let me say something about monarchy in the ancient world, just for a little bit of context. And this is important context. Monarchy was, of course, the standard form of government in the ancient world at this time. And it was relatively simple. The way it worked was relatively simple. You did what the king said or you died in generally in painful ways. It was invariably a dictatorship. Now, uh, any book on the uh, emergence of um, human civilization will tell you that people gathered into kingdoms under kings mainly for protection against each other. Now, the way that it worked was a kind of social contract. In exchange for the king's protection... The people would put up with almost anything. So kings 
had virtually unlimited power over their subjects and they regularly exploited their people who submitted, of course, out of fear. But even this was better, they considered. Even this was better than being alone and vulnerable in a dog-eat-dog world. Now, it's against this backdrop that we have God's plan. And it was God's plan to demonstrate a completely different notion of authority to the watching world. God wanted to establish a kind of monarchy, a kingship, a form of headship over his people that would reflect the way that God himself rules. God's kind of authority. Not through, not ruling through fear and tyranny, but through righteousness and justice. So, God established a form of monarchy in which, very counterculturally, in which the king would always be subject to the law of God and the prophet who was really the, the guardian of the law. And in all of this, the king, the purpose of the king was to reflect the character of God, God's love and God's justice. So it was basically meant to be what Adam and Eve were called to be and do in the first place, which was to reflect God's image, to be a child of God who loved God and other people and therefore reflected the glory of God. That's what God's notion of kingship was meant to be. Let me read to you part of the instruction of God for kingship in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we'll get to 1 Samuel chapter 8 in a moment. This is from one, sorry, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 17 uh, from verse 15. Be sure, God says in his instructions about kingship, so it was part of God's purpose, and here's the instructions. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Then verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Now, kings gathered horses because the most powerful part of an army in the ancient world was your cavalry, right? But the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Verse 17, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Now, the reason why ancient kings married many wives is not for what might seem like obvious reasons. No, actually, it was they, every marriage signified a foreign alliance. That's how you sealed and made a foreign alliance. You married the daughter of another king. And so that was how kings became powerful and influential. It's probably more of an ego thing. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And then he must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Now, if you're reading this in the ancient world, and, you know, in the context of the ancient world, someone would have said, but what, what options are even left for a king? This is not what a king looks like. 
This is the stuff that kings do. They got rich. They had strong military cavalry. They had lots of horses and they had many wives. That's just inherent in being a king. But it's the next instruction that's actually the kicker. You see, ancient kings created laws. The kings created the laws. They themselves were not subject to the law. In fact, most ancient kings actually claimed to be divine and therefore inherently above all others. It's kind of the divine lawgiver. But the instructions in Deuteronomy 17 go on and say this. When the king takes the throne of his kingdom... He is to write for himself on a scroll a a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the, to the right or the left. Not consider himself better. This is so countercultural. This is not even recognisably what kings were in the ancient world. So God's plan for kingship was a complete inversion of what was customary at that time. The king in short, was to be the servant of God and of his people. Now, on that note, the climactic part of this purpose is that eventually God would incarnate himself into his chosen kingly dynasty in order himself to demonstrate the ultimate act of service. In Jesus Christ, he would come and suffer and die as a sacrifice for the redemption of the world. That's the kind of authority that God had in mind. And it would be demonstrated ultimately in Jesus Christ. So now with this plan in mind for kingship with Deuteronomy 17 in mind, let's read 1 Samuel 8. Now, I mean, here's actually a really important principle of biblical interpretation. The biblical text is very understated. Uh, It sort of expects you to know and to be always asking the question, now, what has God already said about this? That's the best question to ask. When you're reading a text or a story and there's something happening, you need to ask yourself the question, what has God already said about this? That's what the writer of these stories wants, to, wants you to ask that question. So, with Deuteronomy 17 in the background, we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Yes, well, children, no matter who their parents are, inevitably and eventually make their own decisions. That's not the theme of my message today. That's just a side point that we should note. Verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and 
came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Now why, why did this displease Samuel if it was always expressly part of God's plan to give his people a king? Well, the problem here wasn't them wanting a king so much. The problem here was the kind of king that they wanted. They wanted a king like all the other nations had. Verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. In fact, God's kind of kingship. Verse 8. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. You know, they're asking for a king because at the... At that point, they just had Samuel. You know, Samuel's just a prophet. He's not a military man. He's just a prophet. He's the guy that just talks about God all the time. Now they're thinking, no, we need more than that. We need some security here. Okay, so they're willing to enter into this social contract. So God is making it very clear. All right, okay. But let's be really clear here on what you're asking for. So verse 10, Samuel told all the words of of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Now that's interesting in the light of Deuteronomy 17, which says the king shouldn't even have horses, right? But that's, this is the sort of king they're asking for. Verse 12, he will assign to be commanders of thousands, he will Sorry, he will, some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take Take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. No, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see the problem here. They want a, I mean, they want a king like everyone else has got. But you see, God didn't want them to be like everyone else. The whole point of their existence was they were meant to be different and demonstrate something different. Now, what follows is God's answer, and you might expect 
that God would refuse their request and say, no, I'm not going to give you that. But he actually does the opposite. Verse 21. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. So God gives them the terrible thing that they were asking for. I mean, God always intended to give them a king, his kind of king at his right time, which actually wasn't far away. David, the, the, the right king, he's just, you know, he's already alive. But now God gives the Israelites what they want when they want it before giving them what he wants and when he wants to give it to them. And so they get King Saul before they get King David. And the rest of the first book of Samuel is all about the tumultuous rule of King Saul. It's about David too, but we're going to read about the tumultuous reign of King Saul. It's not going to be pretty. They get King Saul before they get King David. They get an oppressive rule before they get a liberating rule. This is how the story goes. The story in the book of Samuel is, this is the story of the book of Samuel. The story of the book of Samuel is a story of how God fulfills his promise and gave his people their promised king, the king who would rule in righteousness. But it begins with a false start. And I want us to pause here and reflect on this. I want to mark this point so that you remember this story. The story begins with a false start. When I think of false starts, I think of me doing athletics. I was never really good at athletics, particularly the running bits. My excuse is that I was brought up on a boat and so you couldn't run a lot. I was good at swimming. But one of the things I was terrible at, whether it was running or swimming, is that I would always be the one when the, to jump the gun. I would always be the one that dived into the water before the gun went. And I think that was indicative of how, of a pattern in my life. To be honest, I have been the worst at making false starts. Running ahead, God's saying, you're right there. You see, this isn't just something that happened then. It's something that happens. And I think it's something that we all do a lot. You know, there are lots of false starts in the biblical story. Like Abraham and Sarah are told that they will have children. God's going to enable them to have children, even though Sarah is barren. So they jump the gun and they come up with this bright idea that it's going to happen through Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. 
And God says, no, no, don't, don't help me. You don't fulfill my promise. I fulfill my promise. And then there's Moses has this sense of calling, this compulsion to save his people from slavery. And so as a zealous young man goes out and he kills an Egyptian slave driver. No, Moses, don't help. You don't save my people, I do, God says. And so he spends 40 years in the desert. Talk about a false start. And then there's Peter, just to name a few. And there's Peter. I mean, he thinks, you know, Peter the disciple, head disciple of Jesus, he thinks he is the man. And he's going to save Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane by swinging that sword around when they come to arrest Jesus. No, Peter. Jesus says, no, Peter. In effect, you don't save me, I save you. False starts. I think they're a very common feature of our lives because it's something that God gives us over to to teach us to stop running ahead and to walk in step with him, which is what God wants to teach us. And so if we run ahead, sometimes he lets us and we do often run ahead. We launch like swimmers off the starting blocks before the starting on diving into the things that we think we need and God actually lets us go. And you know, it might even be in the right direction. It might be the right kind of thing, but if you reach for it for the wrong reasons and before the right time, it becomes the wrong direction and the wrong thing. Sometimes we're just so determined that God will give us over to what we want to show us, yeah, that's not really what you want. See, here's the thing. You don't really know what you want. I mean, we feel impulses. They're all too evident. Need for security, fear, vulnerability, desire for fulfillment, a yearning for validation and significance, completely valid. They are deep, intuitive impulses that are deeply valid and actually they're irrepressible. But then we hastily presume how to fulfill these needs. And so we launch out. Sometimes we launch out actually doing good things, maybe even on the right track. But it's not quite God's way and it's not God's time. And then it crashes and burns and we Often in those moments, we can give up hope thinking, ah, oh, this is a dead end. No, it's not a dead end. It's just a false start. You did it your way in your timing. And actually, just like here in Scripture, it all becomes part of God's plan. God knew that, and he's going to teach you a lesson through that in his love and care for you. Because God wants you to walk beside him, not to run ahead. See, only God knows what will fulfill those deep, intuitive needs. He actually put those, that, those things that you feel, those, those needs, that sense of calling that you have within you, he actually put that in you. He knows what it's for. 
And he also knows the right time to give those things to you. Now, he gives us the appropriate gifts and opportunities when our character is ready to steward those things. Because we grow slowly in our character development, inevitably, therefore, we need to go slowly in our progress. You see, if you succeed and progress in ways that exceed your character development, then you will end up building a Tower of Babel to make a name for yourself rather than building a temple of God to make a name for him and to bring glory to him. And you can even do that just by doing good things but running ahead of God. It might be a good thing, but if it's not a God thing, then it's not the right thing. God only knows. So instead of looking around you at the things you think you want, what we need to do is actually look to God and focus on keeping in step with God. That's what God says. Look, can you leave the fulfilment of those that sense within you of where you need to go. Can you leave that to me? I'll lead you there. What I want you to do is just to walk with me. Let's just walk together. Let's enjoy one another and walk together. That's what God wants. Most often, the thing that informs our choices, inevitably, is what other people have. That's kind of what shapes our imaginations. What do I want? Well, we look, oh, that looks good and that, that, yep. It's what other people have. Now, that's exactly what informed the Israelites' desire to have a king. They looked at the other nations When they looked at them, well, they all seemed to be relatively secure despite all the issues. They at least seemed to be relatively secure under their tyrant kings. And so they thought, well, we want a king like that. And God's reply is like, what? You you want one of those? You So you want a tyrannous and paranoid megalomaniac to exploit you. That's what you want. And their replies was, yeah, yeah, we want one of those. It's a little bit like the conversation I had with one of my children uh, a long time ago when they were young. Uh, when and I forget which of my children it was, but they saw me eating those bright green wasabi peas. It's like little peas uh, coated in that really hot wasabi sauce. And, uh, and, and I think it was my daughter and she said, Dad, I want one of those. I said, no, no, you don't want one of those. Yes, I want one of those. No, you don't. Yes, I want one of those. No, you don't. Yes, I want one of those. Okay, there you go. That's pretty much what's happening here. Israel says, Lord, we want one of those. No, you don't. Yes, we want one of those. Okay, there you go. In the same way, 
We look at things around us and we say, I want one of those. That's, that's what's right for me. I've got to be like that. And we see other people's success. We see their security. We see their gifts. And we let our view of others set the agenda for our lives. And we look, I mean, we do this because what else have we got to go off? That's if we're going to look out there. I mean, God's saying, listen, I just want you to walk with me. Can we just walk together? I'll get you. But no, we, we do this because we're looking out there and it's all we know. We only know what we see around us. But you see, God has something for you that is better than anything that you know. And this was the case with Israel. All they knew about kingship was obviously what they saw around them. They looked at the other nations and from that they formed a picture of what was best for them. But God wanted to give them something better than what they knew and God wants to give us something better than what we know. It's kind of hard to set your desires on something that you don't yet know about. That's why God says, okay, so let's just walk, just you focus on keeping in step with me. Rather than pursuing all these other things, you focus on pursuing me, God says. This is what it says in Psalm 37. Verse 4. This is a good one to memorize. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you what is right for now and this life. Ultimately, there's something way better beyond this life. Remember, it's not all about this life. He will give you what's right and best for now. And ultimately, eternal life. God says, so can you just stop running ahead? Can you just stop running off to the left or the right? or even running ahead in good things. But it's like, no, didn't ask you to do that, not yet. Can you just focus on walking with me, God is saying. I wonder, I wonder if you've run ahead. Maybe you're in the process of running ahead. Maybe you've run ahead and it's crashed and burned. No, that happens. Well, I've got some good news for you. <laughs> in as much as we are inclined to make false starts, God is in the business of fresh starts. So when you come to your senses, and often that's only when we crash and burn, you need to remember that while you are very much inclined to make false starts, God is in the business of giving fresh starts. And he does that because of what he did in Jesus Christ to pay for our guilt and all of our wrongs so that we can be forgiven. So that God says to us now, 
all right, get up and go again. Get up and let's go again. And this time, can you stay beside me? God is giving you a fresh start today. So get up. And this time, walk with God in God's way, at God's pace, and in God's time.